Life Audio. So welcome to the Gospel Red. Dr. Bill Sinyard here. What do women want? <laughs> you don't get it through legislation or change of policy. You don't get it. Uh, by muscling through your insecurities and all the wounds. Yeah, even counseling has its limitations. So women, here it is. You want the same thing that men want, significant security and belonging. Think about it. But nothing has hurt you more than you're searching for significant security and belonging, right? Think about it. There's another way. Thanks for checking us out. Make sure that you follow this show on whatever podcast platform you use. That is so helpful to us. Give us an email. uh, Let us know what you're hearing, what you're getting out of this series of the Song of Songs. I'm going to put the best comments on the pod page, gospelrant.com. Again, we're in movement three. It's the seven movement Song of Songs. And some things don't change. The queen bride, man, we find her alone again and longing for something. She's not even sure what that something is. Someone called it a nagging murmur of discontent. Yeah. Uh, Do you know what it is? I mean, sure, you felt it, right? No judgment. She thinks she knows. But when the king arrives, boom, her reactionary behavior kicks in. She blows it. More shame, more sense of failure, more reactionary behavior. And the cycle begins, right? No judgment. We're going to talk about it. We'll be right back after some words from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast, to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on the Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. The New York Times back in May of 1998 did a profile of Francesca Woodman, a very talented uh, female photographer who tragically committed suicide at the age of 21. The author was asking the questions whether there were some signs or some clues in her work or behavior that she was so depressed to, to, to the point of suicide. I mean, some art observers argued that there were clues. She was immensely talented. Some said brilliant. 
great future. She was really kind of the start of a new artistic movement in photography. And then, boom, shocking the art world. No one saw it coming. So how did so many people know her and yet not know her? The photographs give us a bit of a clue. They are profoundly emotional. One person wrote in a trapped kind of way, almost inviting the viewer to help find her. Are you with me? Her face is often blurred or looking away or reflecting in a mirror or simply not even in the frame. On the rare occasion that she photographed her face, she seemed distant or blurry. In a double portrait with a man, for instance, half of her face disappears in the shadow. So do her photographs chronicle a death foretold, a death wish? Well, not in the sense that she plays with any imagery of death. I mean, not really, but perhaps so in the fragility of her self-image, in the innocence that disguises the sexuality of her poses and the way she pushes herself to the limits, seemingly oblivious to the dangers involved. Close quote. Well, I'm going to use Francesca today as a metaphor for the average woman. I mean, you know, on a scale of of 0 to 10, she might be a 10, and and the average woman today in the United States and Canada may be a 2 or 3 or 4 or 5, but we're on that scale. The anxiety levels are so high. Suicide ideation is up. Loneliness is up. We're on that scale, right? Photographs of us will be a little bit blurry. So the average woman today is hungering for something, a relationship that's mutual, That has equality, that's lasting, that's empowering, unconditional love without strings from someone who you respect, who respects you, who adores you as you are, who has your back no matter what, right? Who would invest in you, who thinks that you can change the world. That's what I want too. And so, woman, you spend a great deal of time and energy looking for that. You're restless and anxious and dissatisfied, frustrated. You're a pushed person, pushing yourself to the limit, seemingly oblivious to the dangers involved. But hear the good news of the Bible. The great lover king, that fantastic God who created us all, has sought you out. If you're a Christian, he's found you. And he bids you to come to him, to trust him, to be loved by him as you are. He thinks you can change the world. He's got your back. Sometimes, though, it just doesn't feel like it. That's where the king finds the queen. I'm writing a book on overlooked Old Testament women. It's going to be a fascinating book. I'm about halfway through. Probably most of the women you've never heard of. It's, a, it's, it's stunning to see how God pursues and raises up those women in what they lived in, they lived in a highly sexist, patriarchal society. I mean, really, uh, he, he does that, right? The patriarchal society today, he can handle. And you and I need that. Christianity is about a living, breathing, ever-present, dynamic relationship with the intimate, vulnerable, glorious, holy God of the universe. Vulnerable. I said it. It's simple. It's profound. And And so dangerous, meaning it's not going to leave you as you are. And it's so wonderful to enter in as straightforward, very intuitive. In fact, our hope today and throughout this series in the Song of Songs is that the path of commitment, a covenant, would be demystified. The third and its parallel fifth movement are all about my struggle, your struggle to find worth, identity, relational sexuality, self-esteem, where I can 
try to find it and where I most often fail. If we were to put the third and the fifth movements to music, they would be the blues, maybe, or heavy metal. The the tone abruptly shifts from the rapturous love and, and rest of movement two to a troubled, dark night of the soul. So listen to the conciseness, the compacted aspect of this poetry. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. The queen says, All night long on my bed I looked. The Hebrew is bakash, from the one my heart loves. I looked, bakash, for him, but I did not find him. Matzah. You see the, the searching and the finding? So I will get up now and go about the city. Through its streets and squares I will search, bakash, for the one my heart loves. So I looked, bakash, for him, but did not find him. Matzah. The watchmen found Matsami as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found Matsah, the one my heart loves. I, I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. Well, here the poet very brilliantly has Bakash looking four times, completely balanced by Matsah, four times, and unlike the previous two movements, this time she desires to actually be with the king. She starts off with this desire. But clearly, the readers can see that her desire is a bit dysfunctional, right? It's self-focused, it's desperate, it's, it's riddled with insecurities. It's just not healthy. So it's the right step, it's a desire. She doesn't have the lattice anymore, and yet, you know, she's got wounding still. So from her point of view, he has nowhere to be found. And however, once again, we the readers get it that he never left her. He's right there. He's never stopped loving her. Uh, He's embracing her. That's the image in the poetry, right? Then this is us and God. The poem is an inclusio with both the first and the last scene in an intimate, vulnerable bedroom context. The tension of her being alone and her lover strangely absent has been resolved again. And remember, these movements are from the queen's perspective. Yep. So here is my interpretive translation. The horrible dream is back. Night after night, I was alone, frantically looking for my king. I felt abandoned. Again, my greatest fear. So desperate was I that I got out of bed, put on my robes and sandals, and ran to the all-familiar city. What a sight it must have been, the queen urgently running up and down the dark, shadowed alleyways, in and out of the raucous bars and nightclubs, I looked, but oh my heart, I looked, he was nowhere to be found. So you get it, right? This is an internal, emotional, spiritual, dark night of the soul. Our queen feels terror. I think that's the right word. Fear of abandonment, fear of being a nothing, fear of being left alone, of betrayed, of being betrayed. Well, researchers seem to back this reaction up. She's not crazy, Pretty normal, fallen humanity. We should all be able to relate to her. When you step on a sharp rock, a very fast and powerful signal is sent to your DACC up in your brain, and your DACC says, ouch. And it shifts all of your brain's attention, resources on doing something to remove the pain. And researchers have discovered that the very same thing happens with emotional pain. Think breakup or loss of a loved one or some other emotional trauma like the queen feeling abandoned by the king. 
Her DACC says, ouch, and her brain becomes obsessive compulsive to relieve the pain, her pain, loneliness. And so she runs to the city, the absolute last place to find the king. And for those who are chronically lonely, get this, your white blood cells seem to be stuck in a state of fear, which leads to serious issues. One leading researcher said, quote, social isolation is far and away the strongest social risk factor out there. Isn't that interesting? Uh, John Chiapo agrees the level of toxicity from loneliness is stunning. Here's another quote. Think of it like this. Loneliness creates a hunger in the brain, and our brain signals deep dissatisfaction. We become restless, irritable, and impulsive, right? That's what the queen is doing. If we don't have the ability to connect socially, we are so ravenous for our social neurochemistry to be rebalanced We're likely to seek relief from anywhere. And if that anywhere is opioid painkillers or heroin, it's going to be a heat-seeking missile for our social reward system. Is it any wonder people in today's world are becoming addicted so easily? That's Rachel Wurtzman. Some of us believe that it's no coincidence that the rise of loneliness in the United States coincides with the rise in opiate use. If you feel lonely... Take two Advil, but you'll become addicted to the Advil. And remember, this is in the shadow of a new, powerful experience of the king's love just a few verses before, Christian. All right, but I'm now going to suggest that more is at play than just loneliness. As we look at this woman, I think she really is a study of humankind. Our prefrontal cortices is supposed to be that calming, reasonable place with a question, is that such a good idea, is asked. The prefrontal cortex is not online fully until we're in our early 20s. So we said that the queen could be 14, 15, 16. So that could be part of it, affecting her uh, insanity, if you will. Um, I'm using that word too loosely. Uh, her her over-the-topness, right? She's not being reasonable here. She's running to the city, right? So I'm not judging her. A lot of it makes sense. It's not all her fault. But I suspect there is more at play. Based upon what we know of her, her own testimony, I'm going to say that she has an addictive personality. Or at least this stage in the poem, she lacks the capacity to emotionally self-regulate. So she needs something else, something external, a relationship, a kiss or or, uh, whatever, some self-medication to soothe her and comfort her. And so she runs to the city. We now know that no one is born with the ability to emotionally self-regulate. Infants are completely dependent upon their parents to regulate their physical and psychological states, their emotional states. Imagine an infant all alone, on the floor, on the rug, crying at the top of her lungs. She may be wet or hungry or afraid or scared. She's feeling abandoned. She can't put words to it, of course, uh, but she's crying it's her DACC is fully there, and it's saying release the release the beast, the fight, flight, freeze chemicals, cortisol, and so the child's in a fear cycle, and so they cry out, they f- they fight, or they could shut down and freeze, but they need comforting, right? They can't self-soothe. It's as if they're saying, "Is there anyone there for me?" 
And matter of fact, some researchers think that's exactly what their brain is saying. So a parent or caregiver must come, put their face right in front of the child and comfort them. You know, oh, baby, I hear you. It's all right. I'm here. They use soft, lilting tones. They hold the baby. They rub her arms and her back until the baby calms down. Infancy is a borrowed ability to emotionally regulate. Parents, researchers now know that if parent and caregivers do this, this attuning that I just described, this psychical connection with a child, one out of three interactions, that's all, not three out of three, one out of three, 30%, all things equal, the child will enter the next stage of life secure. That, says researchers, is good enough. That's where we got the title for our free online program for Christian parents of teens and tweens called Good Enough Parent. Free, right? 30% is doable, parent. You can do this. One out of three. And we can show you how. We give you tips, particularly for parents of, of teens and tweens, but we talk about infancy as well. Go to the landing page. Watch the short intro video, goodenoughparent.online. Goodenoughparent, one word, dot online. We will send you free, 15 free, short, accessible, really sophisticated, but relevant parental tips one a day for 15 days. Free. Participants found that they have understood their teens 46% better as a result of the program. That's a win. I also did a recent YouTube video on parenting infants and teens uh, on my YouTube channel at Dr. Bill Senior. Check it out. It's called Parenting in These Crazy Times. Infants who do not get that kind of care may never learn to emotionally self-regulate. Secure children are stronger in emotional regulation than our children who were in insecure relationships or experienced that, in which their parents may have been more dismissive or punitive or critical of the child's emotional expressions. You know, stop crying. And even into adolescence and adulthood, they must rely on some external support to soothe their anxiety. And that can be tough in relationships with humans and with God. Okay. It's probably a good place to take a break and get a word from our sponsor. Addiction expert Gabor Matei, in his amazing book in the realm of the hungry ghost, speaks about the addicts that he served, the chronic addicts on the streets of East Vancouver, British Columbia. Here's what he says. They just cannot make themselves feel okay without such supports whether they be chemicals or food or excessive need for attention, approval, or love, or they seek to make their lives exciting by engaging in activities that trigger elation or sense of risk. A person with inadequate self-regulation becomes dependent on outside things to lift his mood and even to calm himself if he experiences too much undirected internal energy. Doesn't that describe the queen a little bit? I mean, I'm just tossing it out there, right? I mean, I can't prove it, but I think she has a bit of an addictive personality. And look, we all, again, scale zero to ten, we all suffer from this. So when the king finds her, or finds you, the queen seems to lack emotional self-regulation and impulse control. We'll see her change throughout the movements. The key trait of the addictive-prone personality is a poor hold over sudden feelings and urges and desires. They pop off, right? So whatever the queen is feeling at the moment tends to define her view of the world and is going to control her actions, and maybe you too. No judgment, right? We all come from different contexts. So the queen lacks differentiation. What is that? It's the capacity to hold on to ourselves while interacting with others. 
The poorly differentiated person is easily overwhelmed by his or her emotions, absorbs anxiety from others, and generates considerable anxiety within him or herself. That's Gabor Mate again. Meaning, they're prone to codependency. So, she can, the queen can experience the love of the great king in one moment, and then the next day trigger and, and just discount the experience. The king's love has not finished its wonderful work yet, but it is also not holding back or keeping score or despising her. God's love heals. God just keeps pursuing people like the queen, people like you, people like me. It's part of the gospel. Matei shares, some of my addicted patients functioned reasonably well until, say, their marriages fell apart, and then they spiraled rapidly into substance use. Even in the downtown east side, their moods hit rock bottom or soar according to how they are doing with their current partners. They feel hurt easily and are quick to believe they are being rejected. And their level of drug use often hinges on what happens in their relationships. When one relationship ends, they may immediately plunge into another. They are often unable to engage in a process of recovery because their partner is unwilling to join them. They see the relationship as being more important than their own healthy self. Poor differentiation also keeps people in destructive relationships, which themselves take on an addictive quality. So at this point, from the queen's point of view, the, the relationship seems a bit toxic, right? She's codependent. She's not a queen yet. She's not an equal partner. And that's coming. And the king's going to keep loving her, and his love's going to transform her and you and me. Not perfectly this side of heaven, but it should be noticeable. That's what we're longing for. Remember, what do women want? What do men want? This. Well, the queen has many traits of an addictive personality, it's true for those with eating disorders, uh, self-cutters, gambling addicts, sex, porn addicts. She has poor self-regulation, uh, lack of basic differentiation, lack of a healthy sense of self, uh, a sense of deficient emptiness and impaired impulse control. So what can she do? <laughs> right? That's where, king, that's where the king finds her and he loves her. That's good news. There's healing. And from a neuroscientific point of view, brain rewiring in the experiential arms of the great lover king. That's what his love does. So here's what we're learning. Good news for lonely people, particularly chronically lonely people. Yep. Those who struggle to emotionally self-regulate. Those who might be addictive prone. We have got some really good news. The presence of the king's perfect love is both the cure and the power that even further exposes her deep needs. So cure and exposure. And by the way, remember, poetically picture that she is still in his arms. His love is healing her. But emotionally, she checks out. She runs to the city, just like you and I. Even when we're riddled with anxieties and worries and insecurities and frustrations, we're still in his arms. We still have the Holy Spirit on in our inner being. He's healing us. Somehow our brain has checked out. We're not experiencing it. So listen, remember the simple and cluttered gospel twice a day, 45 days. Say it verbally, say it aloud, say it word for word. Don't think just because you know the simple and cluttered gospel. Oh, I've heard Dr. Bill talk about that. Don't believe that just because you know it, that it's doing something in your midbrain, doing it any good unless you're seeing it twice a day. More when you're in this kind of cycle. You with me? The motif used by the poet is a nightmarish darkness. 
There's fears in the night and questions that are being asked in our brains, questions and uncertainties. Will she ever know love again? Is the king faithful? Did he really love her after all? Is he now loving someone else? Is she abandoned? All of the past baggage just rises to the surface. Maybe my, my brothers are right. Maybe the daughters of Jerusalem were right. What a fool I am to think I was the, the queen. Where's the lattice when I need it? And remember the two core subconscious questions that we're all asking. Is there someone out there who really has my back that I can really trust? Am I really lovable by anyone? particularly by God. Hmm. Well, at least this time, there's been a change. She does something. There's no lattice, right? In the last movement, she was trapped. That lattice, here she's actually exercising some freedom. She blows it, but she's moving. There is a change in the wind initiated by the king's love. And in the poetry, there's a contrast presented by the city and the garden. The city, we'll talk some about that, is cold and lifeless. It offers no intimacy, no healing. It's a very dangerous place for the queen. The exterior packaging, the veneer looks very good. Its advertising may look enticing, but it's just spin. It's, 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 it's uh, a facade. There's no depth, no life. It's the anti-great lover king. It's always winter in the city. On the other hand, the garden is where the luxurious life dwells. It's where the great lover king gives himself to her and to create that self-place where she can reciprocate. This is where they can be alone and intimate. Her senses become alive by the colors and tastes and fragrance. She becomes so human in the highest sense, for a moment anyway. But like my relationship with God... We choose to enter into it and choose to leave our lattices and trust God to look up into his gaze again over and over. So what is it that gets into her head to look for the great lover king in the city? It's counterproductive. See, on the one hand, to her credit, she's longing after the great lover king. But on the other hand, she foolishly and irrationally goes the wrong direction. A great personal danger. Why go to the city? Well, Maybe you've got this. It's because that's where she's always gone for love and, and worth, to, to find soothing, to attempt to medicate her low self-esteem. This is the gaze that she has habitually used to measure her value and purpose. It's habitual. It's reactionary. It's fear-driven. Largely subconscious place where, I don't know, 24-7 throughout her entire life, it has been the conditional city that has enticed her and quote-unquote loved her. And the city does respond favorably, at least temporarily, to the attractive, the young, the connected, the wealthy, the powerful, at least for time. And honestly, apart from the presence of a great lover king who loves people like the queen as she is, what little identity there is in the world, got to be squeezed out of the cold streets of the city. And to her credit, she's thorough. She looks up one side and down the other and surprise, surprise, no king. Well, we'll pick it up there. Um, next time, and uh, we're also next time going to read the third movement from my book, The Novella, and I know you'll enjoy that. So more to come. Let us know you're getting it. We love hearing from people. We love dialoguing. Thank you for those people who sent the emails, bill at gospel-app.com. Do us a favor. Help us get the word out about this love of God for unlovables like the Queen. Go to wherever you listen to podcasts and intentionally follow 
If you go to Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, for instance, you can also review this particular podcast. We appreciate it, so please do. This might be just a thing for someone else uh, to want to check it out. So thanks for coming alongside of us as a co-conspirator. And don't forget the Good Enough Parent program is totally free. 15 biblical, relevant, easy to access and to apply parent tips all online. It could help you better understand why little Johnny explodes when you tell him to eat his broccoli or Janelle who trips when you say she can't go to her friend's house tonight. I'm taking a break from my book on the Song of Songs, a little short break, and I'm writing a book on overlooked biblical women of the Old Testament. So much fun. Uh, so in sync with what I'm doing with the Song of Songs. Let me know if you want to be on a mailing list to be informed when it comes out. About halfway through, so it should be out, oh, end of the summer, I hope. Bill at gospel-app.com. Take heart, child of God. God's Word will change our life, but sometimes it's hard to know where to start. Well, that's where I come in. I'm Jody Nisnik, host of So Much More, Creating Space for God, a scripture meditation podcast. And each week, I guide you through a scripture, giving you space to listen to the Spirit and pray about what's on your heart. Then we have a thoughtful conversation with guests to help us go deeper. Listen and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.